0: The big question remains tonight, where is Heidi Allen?
1: We are hearing from the family of Heidi
2: Allen for the very first time. A snowy Easter Sunday just before 8 in the morning when Heidi made her last transaction. The
0: family of Heidi Allen of Oswego County says the new details on her kidnapping and
2: presumed death.
0: Many in the Oswego community believe he and his brother Gary were responsible
1: for Heidi Allen's disappearance.
2: 24 years after his arrest for the kidnapping
1: and presumed murder of 18-year-old Heidi Allen.
3: I've been
0: in this from day one, Is you know, there's nothing else I can say. All I know is they ended up chopping
2: her up. What do
3: you think happened, Heidi? What was done with her body?
0: The thing the thing was, there wasn't really any hard evidence at all. <laughs> it's not even, they didn't even bring her in the home. It didn't We said, Gary, yeah, you
2: killed this girl, didn't you? And he stopped a lot. He said, maybe I did, maybe I didn't. You'll never know. This is the story about Heidi Allen, the 18-year-old store clerk who was abducted in 1994 from the convenience store she worked at. The information you hear in this podcast comes directly from original court documents, police reports, witness statements, and recorded interviews. And if you're just now joining us, stop and listen to Episode 1 first. In episode one, We learned that investigators and prosecutors set their sights on the Thibodeau brothers, even though there was no physical or forensic evidence linking them to the crime. And yet, both Thibodeau brothers were arrested. Were police and prosecutors following the evidence? Or were they simply looking for the things that they wanted to find? This is Peebles for the People. I'm Alex Peebles.
0: I think we need a miracle, I'm t- collect calls from an inmate at the Massachusetts Department of Corrections at Framingham. To refuse this call, hang up. If you use three-way calling or call waiting, you will be disconnected. All call detail and conversation, excluding approved attorney calls, will be recorded. To accept this call, dial one now.
2: When Gary was arrested in May of 1994 on misdemeanor drug charges, his girlfriend, Sharon Rapaza was also arrested and extradited to Massachusetts. She was extradited to Framingham, to be exact. Her bail was set at $10,000 cash. While in jail, Rapaza made regular phone calls to family members to check in and get updates on Gary, and all of her phone calls were recorded. And that's true for all calls coming from that jail police hope calls like this will provide recorded confessions or small bits of information that could help build a case against someone but none of rapaz's phone calls offered police any information regarding the disappearance of heidi allen you know this,
0: this is you know in the movies jail movies how they have a. Uh... Like, yeah. you know, up, uh, jail cells upstairs, downstairs, that's what I'm in. Oh, boy. It's a fucking women's prison. There's a woman in here doing life for murder. Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The gods in here are a bunch of fucking pricks, too. Yeah. They treat you like you're a fucking murderer, you know? Unbelievable. So Angela's on fucking real. In they strip search here, you, know, you gotta fucking bend over these fucking, your ass, everything. Yeah. Unreal. I fucking, I'm, I've never been so humiliated in my life. Right.
2: More than anything, Sharon sounded scared and upset, but Gary would never get the chance to hear Sharon break down in tears while on the phone.
0: with me. If you can remember that name, Natalia. Natalia? Yeah, Tell him Natalia's in here with me and she's looking out for me and things are cool. That I'm okay because, you know, no one's fucking with me. Put it that way. Well, that's good. Because he was worried about it. He's been crying on the phone every night to Teresa and Dick. Yeah. You know, Dick's worried about him. No, I'm I'm worried about him too. I just want to be with him. I want to hold him so bad.
2: Sucks. Just sucks, awful. After a few phone calls with her parents, Sharon was finally given an update on Gary. Did
0: my honey call? Uh, yeah, he called this morning. Did he?
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. How's he doing? He's doing
1: okay. He's being held without bail. He,
0: he is? Yeah. Why?
1: Is he in, he's in Whisper? I, I believe he's in Whisper, right? He, he wasn't Fitchburg. Manu. Huh? He was in Fitchburg last time, Manu, I think that was this morning when he was in court or something, I don't know. Oh yeah, why
0: is he being held without bail? I guess because of the
1: ongoing investigation in New York. Oh lovely. I don't
0: know, but. Is that what he told Ma? Yeah.
1: I talked with his lawyer too, Cronin. Yeah? Because Gary called mine and asked if, we, if we'd uh, pay him some money. He wanted to if be. what? He asked if we'd pay Cronin some money because Cronin wanted money up front. Oh, yeah. So I, I called Cronin and told him we'd send him a check. What the hell is this that they holding him without Bail,
0: Dad?
1: He hasn't even gone to trial yet.
0: Yeah, I know. And Gary's got nothing to do with any of that. I know. Is that what they told
1: him? That he's being held without bail because of that? Yeah, I think so. I think that's what they, thought, what, they what they said. That's because he has no bail on him. But how can New York do that? New York didn't arrest him. He's not under any
0: arrest in New York.
1: New York didn't do it. Massachusetts did. Huh? New York didn't do it. Massachusetts
0: did. Why did Dick get out on bail, but Gary can't? I don't know. That don't make no sense. He's being held without bail for something.
2: for another reason, obviously. Remember in the first episode when John O'Brien talked about extraditions? Uh, to extradite him back to Massachusetts on that
0: charge, which is absolutely unheard of. They, that You never get an extradition on a
2: misdemeanor. Well, according to former defense attorney and county judge Joe Fahey, who we're going to hear more from in a bit, being held without bail for a misdemeanor doesn't typically happen.
3: Extremely unusual, too. In fact, if you know recently, they've done away with cash bail for misdemeanors here in New York.
2: Gary was held without bail, but his brother Richard, the one who was actually charged with kidnapping Heidi Allen, was out on just $7,500 bail. And he was the one who went to police to tell them that he was at the scene of the crime that morning.
0: That can't have nothing to do with the ongoing investigation in New York because Gary's got nothing to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't even know how Cronin can say that when his brother's the one that was the prime suspect, arrested for it. How Gary would even tie into it at all just because it's his brother? That's bullshit. They don't even like each other.
2: In the middle of July, 1994, Gary and Sharon were finally reunited. They pleaded guilty to misdemeanor drug possession charges and were released from jail. The couple returned to upstate New York, leaving the extradition and drug charges in their past. But what they didn't know was that Gary's conversations with two of his jailmates were shared with police. Those conversations were used by law enforcement to charge Gary with the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. It had been less than a month since Gary and Sharon had returned home from the nightmare they thought they left behind in Massachusetts. But Gary had an alibi. Sharon Raposa was Gary's alibi. Raposa claimed that the morning of Heidi's disappearance, Gary was in bed with her at home and they slept in until around 10 a.m. And then they stayed home all day and the following days. But the prosecutor, Donald Dodd, had something else up his sleeve. Dodd subpoenaed Sharon Raposa to testify in front of the grand jury, meaning she had no choice. She had to testify. And Dodd was able to get a grand jury to indict Raposa, charging her with perjury. She was accused of lying to the grand jury, saying Gary was with her that day and the days following at their home on Kenyon Road. According to the same ex-colleague of Dodd's that told us about his tactics in the first episode, this was another go-to move for Dodd. Go after the witness that provided the defendant with an alibi. And according to Fahey, it doesn't take much for the grand jury to indict someone. Judge Wackler once said you can indict a ham sandwich.
3: Okay, so, uh they, 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 they put Sharon in front of the grand jury as they were investigating the case. She testified she and Gary were uh, home, and uh, Donald Dodd asked the grand jury to indict her for
2: perjury, and the grand jury acquiesced. You just heard Fahey, quote, former New York Court of Appeals judge Sol Walkler. And to put it into other words, the late U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Douglas, he wrote, quote, any experienced prosecutor will admit he can indict anybody at any time for almost anything before any grand jury." The grand jury determines if there's enough evidence to constitute probable cause that a crime has been committed and to charge someone with that crime. They don't determine innocence or guilt. At the state level, as well as the federal level, All grand jury hearings are closed to the public and run entirely by the prosecution. If you were to testify in front of the grand jury, your attorney would not even be permitted to be there. And misuse of the grand jury can and does happen. A perjury trap is a form of prosecutorial misconduct. According to a University of Pennsylvania Law Review called the perjury trap, a perjury trap occurs when a prosecutor "...purposefully sought to induce the witness to testify in a manner that the prosecutor knew could be contradicted by sufficient independent evidence." In this case, Rapazza was subpoenaed to testify in front of the grand jury because she was Gary's alibi witness. She had already given statements that she and Gary were in bed together the morning of Heidi's vanishing and that the two had stayed home the days following. But investigators had a statement from someone who said Gary and Sharon drove to her home in Massachusetts and arrived at 6 p.m. on Easter evening, 1994. Pamela Newton told investigators that Gary and Sharon showed up unannounced on Easter Sunday evening in 1994 and had car trouble. Specifically, they had to replace a drive shaft on Gary's 1983 Cadillac. Newton claimed that Gary and Sharon stayed a night with her and her boyfriend John Boyvan, and that the morning of April 5, 1994, Gary and Sharon went to a place called E.T. Coat and Sun Auto to purchase a new drive shaft, and Dodd had a receipt of a transaction from that auto shop, but the receipt didn't include a name of any purchaser. It was simply a receipt for a transaction for a drive shaft, dated. April 5, 1994, timestamp, 1040 AM. So when Sharon Rapaza testified in front of the grand jury, she stuck to her story. Unknown to her was the evidence Dodd had that would contradict her story. Had Sharon known about this before her grand jury testimony, she could have invoked her Fifth Amendment right. The Fifth Amendment protects people from being compelled to give a testimony that could incriminate them. I have the grand jury transcript from Rapaza's testimony where Dodd asked dozens of questions surrounding the Thibodeau's potential involvement in the kidnapping of Heidi Allen. And while reading it, one part stuck out to me. Dodd asked, When you spoke to Gary Thibodeau the first time about being charged, what did he say? Sharon responded, I can't believe it. Dodd followed up with, What else did he say? And that's when Sharon said, they didn't do it. I know they didn't do it because... And that's when she was cut off by Dodd saying, stop there. That portion of her testimony where she says he didn't do it, disregard that. What else did he say? Sharon answered Dodd's question, and Dodd followed up with more questions until the grand jury would eventually indict Raposa on perjury. And the presumable goal of a perjury trap in this case...
3: I think that was designed to basically keep her off the stand during the trial.
2: I think that's why they did that. Okay. And is that something that like happens typically in, in this sort of scenario? Will prosecution... No, I, that was, that was uh,
3: extremely unusual, too. I mean, there wasn't anything about Sharon's testimony that uh, lent itself to be uh, perjurious
2: and Gary Thibodeau's trial was just around the corner. Gary's defense attorney was Joe Fahey. Fahey was tasked with building a defense while at the same time dealing with the media. The Sheriff's Office and District Attorney's Office used the media as their platform to tell the public that they had the guys responsible for the abduction of Heidi Allen. That's how much of the information about the Thibodeau brothers had reached the public. And the community wanted swift action taken against anyone who may have been involved in Heidi's disappearance. From what they understood, that was the Thibodeau brothers. Heidi Allen's father, Ken Allen, was among the people who was outraged and sought justice against the Thibodeau brothers. He could not believe that the brothers were out on bail after being charged with his daughter's abduction. And after drinking one night, Ken Allen decided to take matters into his own hands, give Richard Thibodeau what he deserved, justice. According to the original police report, after drinking one night, Ken Allen told his wife that he was gonna kill the Thibodeaus. But during his fit of rage, his gun went off inside his own home, sending a bullet straight through one of his windows. By the time police arrived, Ken was already in his truck on his way to Richard Thibodeau's house. Deputies were able to catch up to Allen and were able to stop his vehicle after Allen pulled through an apple orchard and into a wooded area. But when police tried to reason with Allen, he was not cooperative and told police he was going to quote, kill someone right here, right now. Talking about the Thibodeaus. Police were eventually able to calm down the exhausted, angry, heartbroken father and avoid a catastrophe. But while in the police cruiser, Ken Allen stated he would kill the Thibodeaux if they were not found guilty of Heidi's disappearance. The community wanted this case resolved, and as time kept moving forward with no sign of Heidi or what happened to her, anger towards the Thibodeaux grew. Under Sheriff in charge of the investigation, Rural Todd, noted that there was no weapon found and no forensic evidence linking Heidi to the Thibodeaux. But for some reason, the picture that Todd painted to the public pointed the finger directly at the brothers. Quote, We don't have a body or a guy standing over it with a gun, and if you take every piece of evidence by itself, it means nothing. But if you put it together, the alleged statements, the van sightings, and descriptions, it makes sense. End quote. On top of that, someone was leaking information to the media, saying that the Thibodeaux may have been responsible for a similar kidnapping that occurred in Massachusetts, which is where they were originally from. A police department in Massachusetts contacted the Oswego County sheriffs with information about a similar kidnapping they had about one and a half years before Heidi was taken. The kidnapping did have a similar feel to Heidi's, a convenience store owner went to take over the morning shift to relieve the overnight clerk. But when he arrived, there was no sign of the clerk. Her purse and her car were still at the store. In that case, though, unlike Heidi's, the clerk's body was found just two miles down the road. The theory that the Thibodeaux were involved in that kidnapping was quickly disproven. All of the talk to the media about the Thibodeaux's potential involvement in this Massachusetts case prompted a gag order from the judge of Gary Thibodeau's trial. A gag order is an order given by a judge that prohibits attorneys, police, or any parties to a pending criminal prosecution from talking to the media or the public about the case. And it made sense to try and contain what was being said about this case. After all, the community was already chomping at the bit to bring whoever was involved in Heidi's disappearance to justice. It was clear that investigators were using the media to communicate to the public that the Thibodeaus were involved. Okay, let's review where we are and how we got there. Gary Thibodeau and Richard Thibodeau have both been charged with first and second degree kidnapping. This means they've been accused of Heidi's kidnapping and presumed murder. Remember, Heidi Allen has not been found. In fact, there has never even been a trace of Heidi since the day she vanished. The prosecution would be faced with proving that Heidi was in fact dead, which in this case seems difficult. The only thing investigators and prosecutors knew for sure was that Heidi had not contacted anyone she normally would have since her abduction. What we did know was that Heidi was abducted on April 3rd, 1994 and that the last customer to see Heidi Allen alive was Richard Thibodeau. And when investigators got on the scene, they didn't notice anything out of the ordinary, just some money on the counter, but nothing else was out of place. None of the money on the counter or in the register was taken as evidence or searched for fingerprints, but there was a tire treadmark in the parking lot indicating someone sped off in a hurry. That treadmark was pulled and compared to Richard Thibodeau's van, but it was not a match. Now that doesn't, however, let the Thibodeau brothers off the hook completely. There was no way of knowing when that treadmark was made. Then there were several witnesses that came forward after some time to tell police what they saw that morning. And with a lack of physical or forensic evidence, this case would ultimately come down to who can we believe who can we trust? Because after all, now we're not just talking about the life of an 18-year-old convenience store clerk. We're talking about the lives of two men accused of kidnapping and presumed murder. And the closer I looked at the witness statements, the more difficult it became to figure out who might be telling the truth and who might not have actually seen what they thought they did. John Swinskowski found himself driving to the DNW convenience store on Easter morning 1994. When he got there he purchased a pack of cigarettes and a newspaper. Swinskowski brushed arms with Richard Thibodeau that morning. Swinskowski pulled into the DNW before Richard and on his way out of the store the two walked right by each other and greeted one another in passing. But Swinskowski couldn't recall what Richard actually said to him. In Swinskowski's statement on April 4th, 1994, he pointed out that Richard Thibodeau was somewhere between 5'7 and 5'8. We know that Richard was in fact shorter than that, but someone standing at 5'11 would still be noticeably taller than someone standing at 5'8. On April 8, 1994, Swinskowski was interviewed by police again, but this time, there was information that he gave to police that he didn't include in his first statement, which he gave to police the day after this all happened. I'm reading this directly from Swinskowski's handwritten statement to Investigator Ralph Scruton Jr. And I think it's important to mention that when police take a statement, they transcribe what you say, and that's common practice. There are obvious issues I see with this system, but I don't have time to go down that rabbit hole right now. Here's an excerpt from Swinskowski's second statement. Quote, then I got in my car, started it up, and started to pull around the van to leave. At that point, the van also started to move, which surprised me because I didn't think the person had enough time to go in the store and back out, nor did I hear any doors open or close on the van. Then the van pulled ahead and stopped in the area of the double entrance doors to the store. The van stayed there, end quote. That piece of information seems pretty important in a case like this. In his first statement, Swinskowski said when he started his car and began to leave, that the van was also pulling out. And that makes sense, because according to his first statement, on his way out, Swinskowski took his time to leave. He put his paper in the car, he opened a pack of cigarettes, he pulled a single cigarette out, but he didn't light it, then, he started his car. Also, Richard only needed a couple packs of cigarettes, and there was no one else in the store. How long could a transaction like that take on a slow Sunday morning? And when I interviewed Richard, I asked him about that morning.
3: Well, this guy, I, I know his name now. It's John Swankowski. I didn't know it at the time, or who he was, but he held the door open for me. and I went in the store. And I asked the clerk to get me two packs of basic cigarettes because that's what we smoked back then. So she gave them to me. I paid her. I walked out, got in my van, and I'm waiting for this guy to get in his car so I could leave. Well, he was hemming and hawing. He opened up his pack of cigarettes. He threw his paper in the the car and he had to open it up and light a cigarette before he got in his car and then finally he got in his car and drove off
2: then there was Chris Bivens who claimed he was driving past the DNW convenience store at around 8 a.m. the morning that Heidi vanished he said that he saw two men who he thought were arguing with Heidi one of the men had Heidi in a bear hug walking her toward a two-toned van In the last episode, we talked a little bit about Chris Bivens and how he got involved in this case. We know that according to Bivens, who was allegedly the only person to have actually witnessed Heidi being taken from the convenience store, that the men who took Heidi were taller than her. We also know that Gary and Richard Thibodeau were short. Richard stood somewhere around five foot five and Gary was no taller than five foot eight. And now according to Heidi's medical records, she was five foot 11. I was digging through old flyers that were made to help find Heidi when she vanished and I noticed something interesting. All of the flyers had a listed height and weight for Heidi. Most of them said she was five foot 11, but I found a few of them that said she was just five foot nine. I have no way of knowing who made these flyers, but I found it peculiar that flyers being made to help locate a missing girl would be inaccurate and inconsistent. I especially thought it was peculiar because of the inconsistencies in Bivens' statements. In June of 1994, Nancy Fabian came forward and claimed she said that she saw a van that matched the description of the van that Bivens claimed he saw. She said she noticed the van driving behind her, swerving from lane to lane. She also said when she looked behind her, she noticed that the driver was struggling with something or someone in the back of the van. Fabian's first statement wasn't given until June 7, 1994. That's two months after Heidi's disappearance. And when investigators showed her a lineup of pictures, she couldn't ID anyone as the driver. But when police had her come down to the station on June 9th, she was shown one van and one van only. And I bet you can guess whose van that was. That's right, it was Richard Thibodeau's van. As soon as she saw the van, she said, quote, I am 100% sure it is the same van, end quote. We'll never know if Fabian would have picked out Richard Thibodeau's van from a lineup of multiple vans with 100% certainty. But what we do know is that in her original statement, she could not even describe the van with certainty. Quote, the van was older and maybe light blue, and it had a darker color on it, possibly dark blue or black, and it maybe had a stripe, end quote. The day after Fabian was shown Richard Thibodeau's van, Deputy Will Cromie filed a report about showing Fabian the van. Quote, I turned on the garage lights and opened the bay door of the garage so Mrs. Fabian could see the van. The interior lights of the garage are sodium lights and take a while to brighten. As the lighting was dim and increasing, the van driven by Thibodeau appeared to have a blue tint to it. Mrs. Fabian looked at that time and said the color looks like what she saw that morning. I also checked the van's paint job. The van used to be blue. The white barely covers up the blue in some spots, end quote. After having seen pictures of Richard's van and having seen it in person, there is no doubt that Richard's van is white with a black stripe running along both sides. Fabian claimed she saw this van at about 7.45 a.m. in Mexico, New York, but Richard Thibodeau was at the D&W convenience store in New Haven, at 7.42 a.m., purchasing two packs of basic brand cigarettes. Would it be possible for Richard to get to Mexico from the D&W in about three minutes? Lucky for us, deputies Cromie and Randall conducted an experiment to measure the amount of time it takes to drive through Mexico, where Nancy Fabian said she saw the van, to Gary's house on Kenyon Road from the D&W convenience store where Heidi was taken from. These are the exact notes taken by Deputy Cromie from this experiment. Using Sheriff's Unit 26 starting mileage 42,507 we left at 925 a.m. pulling out of the DNW convenience store onto Route 104B, then making a left turn onto Route 104 heading east. Deputy Randall drove at speeds between 65 miles an hour and 70 miles an hour. Five minutes and 45 seconds later, we were in the area by Mexico High School near Mimi's Restaurant where Mrs. Fabian states she first sees Thibodeau's van. We had gone through a green light at 104 and Route 3. We then slowed down to about 30 miles an hour to recreate the speed probably driven by Thibodeau as he was following the Fabian's vehicle. At the corner of 104 and Route 69, we made a right turn, elapsed time of six minutes and 21 seconds. We then picked the speed back up to 65 miles an hour to 70 miles an hour, and arrived at Gary Thibodeau's driveway at nine minutes and 26 seconds from the time we left the DNW parking lot to Gary's house. The ending mileage was 42,515 miles giving the mileage to be 8.3 miles, and the time was 9.34 a.m. We will never know how accurate that experiment was. So many things could have been so different the morning of Heidi's disappearance. Also, the speed limit on Route 104 is 55 miles an hour. Why would police conduct an experiment going 10 to 15 miles an hour over the speed limit? Were police speeding in this experiment to corroborate what Fabian said and what other witnesses said. Also, we know that the two packs of cigarettes that Richard Thibodeau bought were rung up on the register at the DNW at 7.42 a.m. So realistically, it would take at least a minute or two more for Richard Thibodeau to walk back to his van, get in his car, wait for Swinskowski to go, and then pull out. Not to mention, if Richard Thibodeau did kidnap Heidi Allen, How long would it have taken him to grab her from behind the counter, drag her all the way to his van, and then pull out of the parking lot? That is not accounted for in this experiment. Then, one of Gary Thibodeau's neighbors came forward, Brittany Link. She was 13 years old at the time of Heidi Allen's kidnapping, and she lived across the street from Gary. She told police in May of 1994 that she saw Richard Thibodeau's van outside of Gary's house on Easter morning between 7.30 and 8 a.m. when she woke up and looked out of her window. Then, another one of Gary's neighbors, Donald Neville, gave a statement to police on June 20th, 1994. That's more than two months after Heidi's vanishing. Neville claimed he saw Richard's van parked at Gary's house at around 7.50 a.m. on Easter Sunday morning in 1994. But Gary and Richard both claimed... That Richard was never at Gary's house that morning. Neville said he woke up at about seven AM that morning and then went to the Quickfill gas station to buy his wife cigarettes at around seven hundred twenty AM. From Gary's house on Kenyon Road to the Quickfill gas station, it would take someone traveling in a vehicle about four minutes, according to Google Maps. That would put Neville at the Quickfill at around seven twenty five AM neville claimed he just purchased cigarettes by the way he can't even remember what type of cigarettes he got and then he drove back home which would put him back at his house no later than 7 40 a.m on the conservative side neville said in his statement it was about 7 50 a.m when he got home and saw richard's van at gary's house he claimed when he drove by gary's house he saw the van and a couple of other cars in the yard but he didn't see any people. If Richard did drive to Gary's house that morning, looking at the times given to us by Fabian, then Richard would have been pulling into Gary's yard right around the same time or after Neville said he got home from the quick fill at around 7.50 a.m. Months later, on March 8, 1995, 11 months after Heidi went missing, Neville had added to his statement from June of 1994. And I also have that. Here's what Neville claimed. Quote, I would like to add to my statement of June 20th, 1994, something that I remember about three or four months ago. I was just thinking about the Heidi Allen case, not anything in general, when I remembered seeing Richard Thibodeau's van on Easter morning, April 3rd, 1994. I was on Route 69 in the village of Mexico, and I was about to turn into the Quick Fill gas station When I saw Richard Thibodeau's old ratty white van turning right off of State Route 104 onto State Route 69. This is the same van that I had seen at least a dozen times at Gary Thibodeau's house. As a matter of fact, I had thought the van was Gary's since I'd seen it there so much. The van turned onto State Route 69 and headed southeast out of the village of Mexico." In that statement, You heard me say Neville saw Richard's van at Gary's house at least a dozen times. They were brothers. It makes sense that Richard's van has been to Gary's house. The question is, did Neville really see Richard's van at Gary's house on Easter morning, or was it actually a different day? Months had gone by before he originally gave his statement to police, and it was nearly a year before Neville had added to his statement. There seems to be a theme with Gary's neighbors coming forward claiming that they saw Richard's van outside of Gary's house on Easter morning in 1994. Gary's neighbors, William and Susan Cowan, came forward claiming they saw Gary standing outside of a van parked along the road outside of his house. This is according to a statement given by Susan Cowan to Investigator Robert Wheeler on November 15, 1994. For those of you keeping track, that is seven months after this all happened. This wasn't the first time police took a statement from the Cowans. Investigator Wheeler took a statement from William Cowan on June 20th, 1994. Nowhere in his statement did Cowan ever mention seeing Richard Thibodeau's van outside Gary's house on Easter morning. According to that statement, the Cowans didn't really know their neighbors. They only knew that they seemed to fight a lot, referring to Gary and Sharon. And during the last weekend of April, Gary was burning something in their outdoor furnace that smelled terrible. In this statement, Cowan claimed that the smell wasn't plastic or wood. It was just foul. Cowan also claimed that the Thibodeau's furnace wasn't there until after Heidi Allen went missing. Was Cowan trying to say he believed Thibodeau was burning a body that morning? That furnace and all of the ashes and soot from the furnace were tested for human remains. And like John O'Brien told us in the last episode. All they got was chicken bones. Yeah, nothing at Gary's place linking Heidi in any way. In, in his car, in his house, in that furnace. And of course, we have the two jailhouse informants, James McDonald. And Robert Baldessaro, who claimed Gary Thibodeau made admissions to them while he was in the Worcester House of Corrections. We talked to another uh, prosecutor in the office who said, I would not, I didn't ever want to take a case that Dodd started out because
1: it would always have a jailhouse informant and it was always bullshit.
2: With that, prosecutor Donald Dodd felt there was enough evidence to go to trial against the Thibodeaus. Gary's trial would be first he was defended by Joe Fahey, his brother Richard, defended by Bill Walsh. But before the trial, there was a pre-trial motion hearing on December 8, 1994, where defense attorneys for the Thibodeaux asked the prosecution for any documents they might not have had already. And according to the trial documents, Donald Dodd danced around questions brought up by the defense attorneys. And at one point, defense attorney Bill Walsh mentioned he felt like he was at the Bolshoi Ballet. And just one day prior to the pretrial motion, attorney Joe Fahey saw a Post Standard newspaper article written by Janet Gramza. It had mentioned Heidi Allen may have been a confidential informant for the Oswego County Sheriff's Anti-Crime Department. There was a report where Sergeant Roy Lordy said on the day that Heidi was kidnapped, He informed Under-Sheriff Todd that there should be a confidential informant file on Heidi in the Sheriff's locked drug files. But when Gramza asked Todd about the informant file, he simply denied the idea that Heidi ever actually worked for the Sheriff's Office. Todd said Lordy was just confused. Todd admitted that Heidi had spoken to deputies about an unrelated drug case about two years before she disappeared but none of the information Heidi gave in that case was ever used. During the pretrial motion, Dodd said the article in the paper was the first time he had heard about Heidi working as an informant. The judge said he would read the article and told Dodd to look into it, but that was the last anyone ever heard of a file on Heidi being an informant. The walls were closing in on Gary and Richard Thibodeau. Police and prosecutors had built a case against them both, and the community was already turning against them. Gary would be the first brother to face the jury. His trial date was set for May 22, 1995. But on one cold winter's night, sometime between the pretrial motion and Gary's trial, something happened. An unforeseen twist in Heidi's vanishing. You need to explain that to me. Why you're running up down the road? Say, call Bobby Wheeler. I know about Heidi Allen. Call Bobby Wheeler. Call the FBI. Did someone actually know what happened to Heidi Allen? Next time, on People's for the People.